It's Good Canada, I'm Peyton Smith, and this is The Stew. With Canada's food system continuing to grow and innovate, understanding what information is credible, who to trust, and how to feed ourselves and our families can be incredibly confusing. That's why I'm here, to share relevant information on food topics you care about most with the help of experts. Our guest today is the director of the Errol Food Institute and professor of geography at the University of Guelph. There, he works to bring large and diverse teams together to develop strategies that balance our need to produce and distribute accessible, healthy, and nutritious food while stewarding the ecosystems on which we all depend for life. He believes that it is only by building bridges between the corporate sector, government, civil society, and academics that we will be able to create the food systems fit for the challenges of the 21st century. So let's dive in. If you could please introduce yourself, where you're talking to us from, and share your pronouns. Sure. My name's Evan Fraser, he, him, pronouns, talking to you from Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Perfect. Thanks, Evan, and we're so glad to have you on today. I reached out to explore the topic of sustainability in the Canadian food system and how technology can and does play a part in that. And this is an important part of our food system as it's constantly growing and changing and innovating every day. And I simply can't keep up. So that's why we have you, the expert. (laughs) So to start us off, when I reached out to you, Evan, you suggested we could talk about your new book. I've explored a couple of interviews about the piece, and I do have some background knowledge. But for our listeners, can you share what the book is about and what led you to creating it? Yeah, so the book's called Dinner on Mars, and it's a co-written publication uh, by myself and Lenore Newman, who has a similar job to me, so a professor and director of Research Institute about food systems on the West Coast. And the book is really about having dinner on Mars, and it was a COVID project. Lenore and I, we'd been friends, uh, colleagues for years. Um, COVID-19 hit and Mm -hmm. it was March of 2020 and there was no toilet paper anywhere and we were all (laughs) cooped up at home. And uh, Lenore and I started texting back and forth, uh, uh, first of all, about all the the travel we weren't going to do in Mm -hmm. 2020 all of a sudden. And then we sort of went, well, is there a place we could go to in our imaginations and study the food system? And uh, that was the summer when, um, as I recall, uh, like Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson were flying off to outer space on their jets and their fancy rocket ships. And um, and we decided, well, what the heck? Let's let's uh, imagine, let's brainstorm what it would take to feed a human community on the red planet. And uh, what started off as a very silly COVID-inspired diversion became more serious. And uh, after about six months, we kind of paused this silly thought experiment and went, well, there's something here. And we wrote it up as a book that got published in the fall of 2022. So, uh, yeah. So not too long ago. And if our guests are interested, where could they grab that book? So the book is widely distributed. It's not an academic book. It's a popular book. So it mm-hmm. should be available in, in fine quality neighborhood bookstores anywhere. Certainly it's available on, on Amazon and Indigo and, and, and things like that. Uh, and there was a CBC Radio Ideas podcast uh, that featured Lenore and I talking about it. So if you want a taster of the book, you could look up the um, a CBC Radio podcast on that one. Okay, great. So I understand the concept, creating innovative strategies and using technology to feed people on Mars, but how can this relate to the Canadian food system? Well, the thought experiment about feeding a community on another planet really went along the lines of, can we produce enough food sustainably with 
resources being extremely, extremely scarce. Uh, because on the red planet, every bit of organic matter, every little bit of water, every um, photon of solar energy for that matter is a scarce resource. So everything has to be used extremely efficiently on Mars. So we start designing a food system sort of from the bottom up without the encumbrance of politics and economics and things like that, just mm -hmm. simply blue skying it, but under a situation of incredible resource scarcity where every environmental input is really, really scarce uh, and you can't waste anything, we then end up with what we, I would consider a hyper-efficient system a system that's closed loop in that the wastes from one part of the system become inputs to another part of the system. Sometimes this is called the circular food economy, where where instead of producing or extracting, producing and using and then throwing away, we actually have a circular system, which is which is much more analogous to nature. At any rate, on Mars and using the sort of the Martian thought experiment, we have to be super efficient. And uh, and so once you've designed a super efficient system that would work in that kind of extraordinarily uh, extreme environment, you've actually got all the basic building blocks for something that you can imagine being far more sustainable here on Earth. Now, let's be serious here. I mean, we're, this is this is this is a playful thought experiment. This isn't a, this isn't a serious <laughs> piece of 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 um, of engineering. Um, but it it sort of reveals a bunch about I think about sustainability on on Earth and and why we need to move towards a more sustainable food system on Earth in a way that is hopefully. If you read the book, um, playful and optimistic and forward thinking, as opposed to other books that Lenore and I have written and many other people <laughs> have written, which are just sort of depressing and, and scary. Got it. Got it. Now, without completely scaring us, simply how concerned should we be about Earth and our food system and how close are we to that scarcity level that you talk about in your book on Mars? Um. Well, I mean, the data is pretty is pretty terrifying here on Earth, and and I, I don't want to scare people, but mm -hmm. we face a major challenge uh, transforming food systems here on Earth such that they become more sustainable, more nutritious, more healthy, more equitable. So the data the data is pretty scary, and I'll just go through the sort of the shopping list of of, of really depressing stats, and we'll start with with say the environmental uh, statistics. A third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from food food systems, uh, food systems both. Um, because they use a lot of land, but also because they, they they extract a lot of fish from the ocean, are the leading driver of our losing fight to protect the planet's biodiversity. Food systems use more fresh water and are the world's largest polluter of fresh water on the planet. Um, you know, that sort of environmental shopping list of disasters goes on. There's lots of sustainable ways that farming can be done. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so I'm not, I'm not saying it's necessarily that way. But when you look at the global data, it's in terms of food systems impact on the environment is pretty depressing. Uh, then you move into say nutritional things and health things, it's it's equally bad. Uh, we live in a world where both the number of hungry and the number of obese people are rising and that's been going, that's been true for almost 10 years now. Since 2015, uh, the number of hungry people started rising. Throughout, it's interesting, throughout my career, say, say early 1990s, till 2015, the mm -hmm. number of hungry people on the planet was coming down and nutrition was getting better. but um, but starting in 2015, we uh, we see the number of hungry people rising, uh, and 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 the culprit there is is what's sometimes called the three C's: uh, COVID, conflict, and climate change are causing the number of hungry people on the planet to rise at the same time as the number of obese people are rising. Uh, diets and diet-related diseases are our number one preventable. Um, 
public health expenditure. That's largely obesity and diabetes related related problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and we live in this paradoxical world that even somewhere like in Canada, we have um, exploding food bank use, uh, where there is an incredibly immoral unacceptable level of food insecurity in our country. So you add all these things up together. Oh, and then, sorry, and then farmers are constantly going bankrupt and struggling mm-hmm. to to make ends meet. So it's we have a system that doesn't really work all that well for farmers, is causing a large amount of um, diet-related diseases, is both causing stuffed people and starved people, <laughs> um, obesity and hunger, and is really undermining the environment. So you add all those things up together and you think, whoa, there's got to be a better way of uh, of doing these things. I hope so. Exactly. Hence the book. <laughs> Read <laughs> our book. Hence the find book. out exactly. a little bit about that. <laughs> Anecdotally, my boss always tells this little story about how when people used to walk into his office, he had a picture on the wall of this cute little red old McDonald farm dairy barn. And all of the cows, you know, had their ties, their tails tied up. They were all tie stalls, so they couldn't move around. You know, harsh lighting, poor ventilation. The story continues. And people would always come and be like, that's such a nice photo. And he would always say, well, let's talk about that photo. That barn is gone now, and it's replaced by a barn that has open windows that change based on the sunlight of the day. The cows get to walk around. They get scratched um, by scratching posts whenever they would like. They get milked whenever they would like. They have gorgeous sand beds to lie down on, et cetera. And when he asked people, which one would you gravitate towards, they would always say Old McDonald's Red Farm. And I always found that interesting. And whenever he tells this story, I immediately, my brain just goes to the dentist. And I don't know why, but it does. It jumps there. And I always think that if if my mouth is wide open and somebody's doing a procedure, I want the most up-to-date chemicals, technology, practices, everything. But I think there's a lot of skepticism when it comes to technology in our food system. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why that is. Yeah, I, I mean, I know I know your boss and I know that story. And I've got a similar story that involves a tractor in a field. And yeah. our, my, you know, my grandfather's farm, which I spent, you know, a lot of weekends and weeks on and even some summers on as a as a younger person, as a teenager into my 20s. I mean, I would stand on the back of that little Massey Ferguson tractor and throw handfuls of fertilizer pellets off the back of the tractor as grandpa mm-hmm. drove slowly through the, the the sweet corn and the strawberries and the melons. Um, and that's also a very, you know, agriculturally idealistic and romantic Absolutely. image of me hanging with my grandpa and, you know, being an on, honest day's work and whatnot. But in re- the reality of that situation, you dig into that p- painting, picture I just painted for you. And half of that fertilizer at least ended up in Lake Erie as a as water pollution or in the atmosphere as greenhouse yep. gas emissions. That's and that's because me chucking fertilizer off the back of the tractor isn't very efficient. The fer, a lot of that fertilizer didn't land at the right place or at the right time for plants to actually use. Right. Uh, and again, we're, you know, technology can fix that problem in that modern tractors uh, mm-hmm. with GPS systems and what's called variable application technology, which means basically that a tractor quote knows if you can talk about artificial intelligence as knowing something. We don't even have the right vocabulary. But anyhow, um, the tractor knows where it is in the field and puts 
the right seed in the right place and gives it the right amount of fertilizer at the right time. Or at least that's mm-hmm. sort of the future that we're quickly, very quickly moving towards. And 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 the same can be said, as as you just said, for the, the dairy industry and the, and the livestock industry. Um, and yet there remains a romantic attachment to an image of an old style of agriculture. And I think part of that is attribute can be attributed just to simply what they call light ludditeism you know the idea that modern technology in any generation is mm-hmm. greeted with suspicion by some people um and i think that's important to recognize that that ludditeism is is a function of um you know almost any technological moment of technological transition and a percentage of people just don't like newfangled gadgets <laughs> but in behind that sort of maybe irrational, perhaps emotional reaction are some legitimate skepticisms around how technologies have been applied in the past and including in the recent past. And we know that unless technologies are properly applied and properly used, they can create um, inequalities. Uh, you know, does the technology just create a lot of profit for some already wealthy corporations or does it really help things? Um, and that's a very, very important question to ask and get right. And at, at any point of human history and at any point of technological transition, um, we have lots of examples of technologies that were developed that seemed innocuous for the first few years, but ended up resulting in long-term environmental or har- personal harms. You can think of like the use of DDT being sprayed to combat um, um, forest pests. Uh, Well, that created, you know, that was seen to be inert initially, but after 10 years of data, you're thinking, oh my goodness, that was a terrible idea. Or um, lead in gasolines, or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So we have to be engaging with technology very carefully. And I think where I come down is, my goodness, technology presents powerful tools, but -hmm. let's not be naive. Uh, Technology is never a panacea. you know, often what happens is the technologies are developed that solve the problems of one generation, but create new problems for another generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really need to be, you know, having, I think, uh, a very careful uh, debate and discussion, dialogue perhaps, between the the engineers who are producing technologies, the businesses that are taking technologies to scale and bringing it to market, different members of society to see what the impact of those technologies are, and then have a very strong involvement for governmental policy to make sure that when technologies are identified as having negative consequences, we can mm-hmm. but build in programs to help address those. So for instance, if one of the impacts of some technologies is that we no longer need as much um, labor in our in our system because we've right. reduced the amount of labor or hand labor, maybe there needs to be training and retraining programs built in and brought in targeting people who would otherwise maybe lose out from their livelihoods. You know, that would be an example. And, and you could sort of go back and think, oh boy, wouldn't it have been great to anticipate, say, the Newfoundland cod collapse, you know, years in advance and and process and engage in you know dialogues with communities about how to slowly reduce dependency on that resource as opposed to just walking off of a you know a, a, a political cliff that then caused hardship for for huge numbers of people and you could sort of think of a whole bunch of examples from the recent past and the long distant past where we, we you could imagine well well that transition could have been hap- handled in a way better way or Absolutely. that technology could have been rolled out in a better way. Absolutely. On this podcast, one of our reoccurring themes, no matter who we're speaking to, sustainability comes up. Each guest comes on and we get back to that topic and they basically share their part of 
their system and how they're working to make it more sustainable. So what do you believe is the next big thing that we can expect in the future of food? There's sort of three or four areas that of technological innovation, which I think, if they're properly deployed, as per our yes. conversation just a second ago, <laughs> could could have a big environmental sustainability benefit, but will be hard to manage in terms of a social and economic perspective. And um, I'll, I'll start with the least controversial and move to the most controversial, or the least disruptive and move to the more disruptive. And I, th- I think the broad area of precision agriculture, which is the the robotic dairy operation that uh, that milks the cow on demand and monitors her her bio, uh, biometrics in real time, and then can identify diseases like mastitis really early so she can be treated with a fraction of the antibiotics as opposed to the old school system where the farmer had to identify her as being off and then call a vet in. I mean, I mean that sort of broad area of precision agriculture, all the smart tractor I just mentioned a minute ago that plants the right seed and gives it the right amount of fertilizer. Th- that, that, those sort of technologies are, are going to allow us to remain highly productive, increase productivity while reducing environmental inputs, largely because we're going to be unlocking new ways of being more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think those will if they're if if farmers are given given an incentive to use those technologies to protect the environment, there's powerful new tools to do that exactly that. and And I can see those being better. Now, farmers need an incentive to actually use them in that way. And for as long as we have an economic system that doesn't pay for protecting the environment very well, then there won't be a really incentive to to use those technologies. But I think with some incentives, then those technologies should be able to reduce the environmental footprint of agriculture while maintaining productivity. So that's one area where I think is uh, sustainability and technology will will go hand in hand. Moving a little more disruptive um, is the broad area of indoor horticulture, fancy greenhouses, vertical farms, where essentially instead of producing plants out in fields, you're producing plants inside in some sort of controlled setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is coming on fast. I mean, say for an Ontario, for instance, in the last 15 years, we've developed a really robust greenhouse industry that means mm-hmm. that to a large extent, our tomatoes, our cucumbers, and our peppers are largely local now. Uh, we're not importing anything like we used to on those on those crops. Uh, and then the vertical farming, where you're not even using sunlight, you're using LED lights uh, mm-hmm. on these very, you know, imagine if you've never been to a vertical farm, imagine a, a growth chamber that goes up, you know, 70 or 80 feet in the sky with just rack upon rack upon rack of lettuce. I mean, th- those are now increasingly financially viable and are starting to replace California lettuce. Hmm. And I think this is going to be a good thing. I mean, right now we are incredibly in Ontario and across Canada dependent on trucks coming in from California. That right. uh, I don't think that system is going to last for another generation, hmm. uh, not at the volumes at it, uh, that we currently expect. California doesn't have the water. It's moving into in and out of drought all the time. It's got major sustainability problems associated with this industrial field agriculture in the southwestern U.S. Uh, So both from a sustainability and a resilience of supply perspective, I think that uh, Canada will increasingly use controlled environment settings and vertical farms to produce horticulture. Can picture driving down the QEW towards like the Niagara area, and the, you never used to see any greenhouses. And now on either side of you, that's all you yeah. see just greenhouses up and down growing, like you said, cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes, and 
a lot of flowers too, which is super cool to see. Yeah, and cannabis as well. So those would be the five yeah. big crops produced um, uh, produced under glass in in southwestern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that will expand. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of a couple companies uh, now working on strawberries and doing strawberries sort yeah. of 11 months of the year, not quite 12 months of the year, but anyhow, getting close. Um, blueberries, I think, will probably go under glass at some point the next five years or 10 years. Uh, spinach, which has been historically hard to do. I can even imagine a scenario where avocados become commercially viable under that, but that maybe is a little bit more science fiction-y. Anyhow, so I, yeah, this is this is happening, and uh, as it's interesting, as long as we can get the energy right, the energy systems right, this will be really important. So you think of a controlled environment setting um, where you're using LED lights. Uh, there, you've, you've you've got a lot of electricity use uh, to right. produce your crops, but if you can if you can Create solar panels and heat pumps, and uh, use gr- renewable energy. Then the then the climate change or the greenhouse gas emissions linked with your production are way smaller because you're replacing diesel and transportation in California right. with electricity in Ontario. And if you build that electricity system right, then then you should be able to do that with very few climate change emissions. And those things, those greenhouses and the vertical farms are far more efficient in terms of uh, nutrients. Uh, like fertilizers and mm-hmm. water. So your your footprint goes down, your environmental footprint goes down, your productivity goes up, and you've brought things closer to home. And you're eating more fresh fresh food, like mm-hmm. it, you know, as opposed to lettuce picked two weeks ago and shipped from from the southwestern U.S. You're eating lettuce that was picked 48 hours ago. Absolutely. Um. So so that's the second sort of big area where I think. Uh, Technology properly deployed, again, that caveat, properly deployed is yes. critical in all these conversations, uh, could play a big, pay a big sustainability dividend. The third one is the most disruptive, arguably the most controversial, um, and that's protein and alternative proteins. And, and you know, there's about a billion and a, a billion and a half cows on the planet right now. There's there's trillions of chickens on the planet at any one moment, if I'm not mistaken. Um the impact of and oh and protein consumption is expected to go up about 50% globally between now and 2050 so if we wow. don't change anything and we just let current systems expand by another 50% the calculations that i've read and been involved with suggest that we would lose about half of the world's remaining forests to pasture lands we would mm. probably uh, destroy the rest of the oceans. Um, we can't let the business as usual system at the global level uh, expand by another 50%. So then the the question is, well, what is the alternative? And the alternative is um, better breeding and better land management for existing livestock systems. But a major part of the alternative has to be alternative protein supplies. And here we have some really interesting technologies, which I think will be part of a sustainable protein portfolio. And note, I'm not advocating we all become vegetarian all the time. I am Mm -hmm. saying that we all have to probably eat less meat. Uh, Mm -hmm. I personally am on a long-term, or my family's on a long-term sort of slow decline in meat consumption. Um, but But we don't restrict ourselves, you know, cut things out. Um, mm-hmm. And then the then the question is, well, what are the alternatives? And uh, plant-based plant-based foods represent a, an important alternative. And Canada has this huge plant-based food industry um, that largely, but not exclusively, comes from producing things like peas and lentils in the Canadian prairies, and then using those peas and lentils for interesting things, either eating them directly or mm-hmm. 
using them as an ingredient into into uh, other foods. Um, but then there's some really cool technology starting to develop, which is on the broad sometimes called cellular agriculture. When I say cellular agriculture, everyone thinks, oh, we're just going to sort of grow a steak in a lab. I, I, I actually don't think that's the right place to start. <laughs> Got it. I mean, perhaps at some point. And I have eaten some salmon that has been grown in the lab that is very, very good quality. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But, I, but So that's cool. That's cool. I think where, where, where cellular agriculture is actually already making major inroads into our food system is a weird phrase, which maybe you, your listeners will hear it here for the first time. It's called precision fermentation. And it's basically using microorganisms such as yeasts. Um, it doesn't have to be yeast, but yeast, like we've used from yeast to ferment things for thousands of years, right. um, using microorganisms like yeast to, uh, to create proteins. And just like, um, just like a, a brewer's yeast uh, eats, you know, consumes or metabolizes starches and sugars and produces alcohol, or baker's yeast produces um, carbon dioxide to let bread rise, uh, we can actually now have varieties of yeast that produce things like whey protein that that a cow would normally produce. So I've eaten vegan ice cream that has whey protein in it. And that sounds like a misnomer, but that whey protein actually is being produced by a microorganism that's being fed a diet of, uh, I think it's cornstarch, to be honest. They're using cornstarch, raising these microorganisms onto cornstarch. A byproduct of the microorganism's metabolism is whey protein. They scoop out the whey protein. They add some fats. They add some sugars. They add some chocolate syrup. And bang, you've got vegan ice cream produced with a very, very, very small environmental footprint. And that's for sale in the U.S. That particular ice cream I'm thinking of is for sale. It's a California company. It's for sale right now. So I think the area of precision fermentation, where we use mi microorganisms to produce proteins and other ingredients, is about to become very, very large and will provide a whole lot of alternatives and kind of represents a stepping stone on this path towards that imaginary um, steak in a Petri dish, which... <laughs> I don't, whether we ever eat a steak in a, from a petri dish is, is sort of beside the point, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, you say all of this, and we spoke about technology before. Do you, do we think, do you think that the public will accept all of these forms of technology, specifically the vegan ice cream that you were mentioning before um, and the lab-based production of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think the public is too big a category. Right. And there will always be members of the public who are super excited about this. There mm -hmm. will always be members of the public who never accept this. And then there will be the very, very large percentage of the public that sort of over time goes, oh, it's not too bad. I'm willing to go with that. And I think even some of our more controversial food technologies, most notably genetic GMOs or genetically modified organisms, right. really do fall into that sort of broad category. And there are people in Canada and in Europe in particular, so Canada and Europe being the most uh, adverse to GM technologies, who have for years, as a matter of course, as a matter of political uh, ideology, as a matter of, of concern over health and nutrition and sustainability, rejected that kind of technology. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of people, especially people under the age of 40, are very okay <laughs> with all of these technologies as long right. as they've been put through an appropriate food safety and environmental assessment program. Uh, so that's, there's an important caveat there that they have to be tested for health and welfare and sustainability and environmental impact. And 
you know, something like a GM product, it keeps coming up as the example that of a consumer backlash. I don't know, the Royal Society in England put a pub report on GM out a few years ago, and they said something like 15% of the world's cropland is currently planted to GMOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that doesn't sound like a technology people have abandoned. Like that's actually a very, very successful technology from a, I'm, a successful sounds like it's a normative statement. I'm just observing a trend. I'm not making a judgment here. It has been widely embo- embraced by farmers and widely adopted by farmers. And then you go into say, um, you know, your average everyday no frills store. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all the soda pop that is sold in Canada is GM, has GM mm-hmm. corn syrup in it. So right. I, I, I actually think that the percentage of people who reject even something like GM is, you know, it's there, it's significant, it's very vocal, uh, but it hasn't really had an impact in Canada or the US or Asia or Africa, particularly not so much Africa, but certainly Asia in terms of what farmers do or what consumers consume. It has in Europe and to a lesser extent Africa. Um, so I'm 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 thinking that that something like cell meat might develop a a bit of a backlash amongst some people, especially <laughs> affluent people. Uh, I, I think there will always be a market for good quality animal agricultural products. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, say, something like the the cheap ch- tub of ice cream at No Frills or that cheap block of cheddar cheese, you know, no-name cheddar cheese that you put on your ta- nachos and you're not really yes. – you know, you know, that sort of – or the, the, the meat product that goes into the frozen – you know, dollar fifty burrito. Right. I, I think those will be less likely to come from animals and more likely to come from cell mm. uh, ag products in the future. Um, but a fine Stilton and a good quality brie and a free mm-hmm. range roast and a really good Hagen Dazs, those will remain intact. <laughs> and those right. will look like we currently have them. <laughs> <laughs> They're too good. I can't get rid They're of too them. Too good. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so how big of a factor do you believe technology will play in continuing to make our food system sustainable? You've mentioned there's a bunch of factors, but technology specifically, how big of a factor is that in relation to everything else for a sustainable future? Well, it's interesting. I'm coming, I'm you're catching me at a weird moment because if you'd asked me that question, say four years ago, and let's say you reread the book that I wrote with two really amazing uh, postdoctoral research associates, and we wrote it in 2018, 2019, and it was published in 2020. Because mm-hmm. um, you, you write a book one year, you work on the final draft the next year, and then it gets published. So it's like a three-year process. So, so right. the book I wrote, uh, published in 2020, called Uncertain Harvests with Ian Mosby and Sarah Rotz, it was very skeptical of technology. Mm. Um, and it was really... Uh, oh, this technology is a little overblown. You know, it's things aren't happening as fast as we thought they would. It's really about uh, culture and consumer and systemic issues. And I still think the culture and consumer and systemic issues are super important. But uh, when Lenore Newman and I ended up writing Dinner on Mars, which was 2020, 2021, 2022, mm-hmm. uh, the, the technologies had developed, especially the technology we've talked about today already. So controlled environment agriculture, precision agriculture, alternative proteins, these technologies had developed and changed so fast over the last four or five years that I actually think the technological revolution that we're facing is enormously important. Um, Whether it delivers us the hoped for social, economic, nutritional, and sustainability benefits depends on the policies we develop, depends on how the technologies are applied. But I am 
becoming convinced that this that we are on the beginning stages of a massive technological transformation uh, that finally, I mean, I say finally, it's only been 20 years, which in the grand scheme of things is a vanishingly small amount of time. But yes. let's say finally, the technologies that developed the internet are being applied in our food systems. The same technologies that gave us, you know, that went from, oh, what's this thing? Oh, it's COVID-19, this brand new virus in like late 2019 to we have six vaccines in mid-2021. I mean, the, the technological uh, wonderment, <laughs> scientific extraordinary, Extraordinary scientific accomplishment that went into developing those COVID vaccines, identifying the virus, sequencing the virus, developing the vaccines. I mean, those same tools are now being applied to questions of sustainability and food. And we have an unbelievably powerful uh, and, and and picking up speed. I mean, this is this an acceleratingly powerful uh, set of technologies which could deliver massive sustainability benefits if we get them deployed in the right way. So yes, but it also depends. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes, and it depends on the policies and the practices and the consumer issues. Yes. There's a lot of caveats to it. Sure. Yeah, because yeah. the world's messy. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. <laughs> now we all know there's limitations to everything, um, and with that, including technology. What do you think we need to consider in this area in terms of limitations for technology? Well, we've alluded to this already. I, I think. Let's just stick with environmental sustainability, you know, reducing okay. the impact of ag on the environment. Yep. I think that um, we need to have a economic and social system that pays for environmental costs. So I mean, these precision agricultural tools, these smart tractors and whatnot can be used mm -hmm. to protect the environment. But unless a farmer receives an economic reward for having them protect the environment, there's no incentive to use them in that way. Mm -hmm. And this point was hammered home to me a, a few years ago, and we did some research where we looked at the environmental potential of a smart tractor, and um, we'd sort of identified an area in a field using the smart tech tra technology that uh, the farmer wasn't making any money on, and we sort of said, well, you, why don't you use this for wildflowers? You're not making any money on this patch of the field. The smart technology mm -hmm. allows you to identify that easily. Why don't you, you know, plant some wildflowers for some birds and bees? Um, and the farmer turned around and said, well, one, there's a shade tree that's there, so that's why it's not productive. And two, maybe I should cut that shade tree down and plant harder right up to the edge of the field, right? Mm -hmm. And so the farmer had actually been very rational and approached this like a, like a business person <laughs> who is right. managing payments and debts and mortgages and kids in college and whatnot, and that thought, oh, I mean, I have an economic, there's, I'm working in an economic system that rewards me for producing food. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to change my management and y'all use the technology to increase the amount of food I produce. Mm -hmm. If we want that farmer to make a different decision as a society, we want that farmer or farmers in general to say, oh, those unproductive parts of the, the field, I should create wildlife reservoirs and plant flowers for pollinators or things mm -hmm. like that. Well, then we need to pay for it as a society. So things like greenhouse gas, payment schemes to reward farmers for absorbing greenhouse gases. Uh, sometimes it's called payment for ecosystem services, where you think of all the services or benefits the ecosystem provides. And instead of just consumers and government supporting farmers for producing you know, bushels of corn or tons of soybeans, we say, all right, part of your payment is, part of your income is gonna be linked with using the technology to protect the environment. And other places in the world do this, Europe does this, 
uh, in particular. And 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 I think that one of the limits of technology is that technology will be used for what the system supports, and mm -hmm. we need the system to support environmental benefits. So that's one big limitation. Another big limitation is much of the stuff that I work on is related to producing food. We could have a system in Ontario where we reduce the environmental footprint of our agricultural system. We produce all of our fruits and vegetables locally. We have all these crazy proteins and all that stuff. And there still would be people going to food banks and there still would be kids mm. going to bed hungry at night. And that's because uh, food insecurity is a lack of ability to access food that you can afford. And food insecurity, which is what drives people to food banks and whatnot, uh, disproportionately affects moms and single women, disproportionately affects indigenous families, disproportionately affects black and other racialized groups. Mm -hmm. And and we could have like the best production system in the imaginable. We could have that sort of dinner on Mars system sitting <laughs> in the GTA, and we would still have food insecurity in our community because we're not solving for that problem. These technologies aren't going to solve for racism and poverty and sexism and other forms of systemic discrimination. So it's really important to not to realize what problem we're solving for. I think these technologies we're talking about today can solve for the environmental problem. They will not solve for the social problem. That's a different conversation. Happy to talk about it. Happy <laughs> to explore that. But that's a different conversation. So so let's not uh, or let's acknowledge the limits of these technologies and say that mm -hmm. you know, they're important and they're solving important problems or they can solve important problems, but they're not going to create a utopic food system where nobody goes hungry and everybody eats well because a huge number of social issues and and issues around poverty go into uh, the consumer problems. Yeah, it's one part of the silo that we need to that we're talking about today, but there's many silos that encompass the whole system that are super important to helping with food insecurity and all of those other issues. Yeah, exactly. And we need to, while working on these different problems, we need to acknowledge that they're interacting and they're interconnected yeah. and they're part of a broader system, but that, you know, frankly, uh, there are limits and tackling one part of the system doesn't necessarily mean you're going to solve other parts of the system. And there may even be trade-offs. So for instance, if we, if we, pay farmers to create ecosystem services and whatnot on farms, if that results in higher food prices because it's more expensive to administer mm -hmm. the food system, then there may be a food insecurity, food access trade-off as people contend with higher food prices. Uh, so figuring out those sort of trade-offs and developing policies to mitigate those trade-offs is sort of part of this conversation that we need to be having. Absolutely. So as we kind of wrap up, um, what do you feel are action items that our audience, just everyday Canadian consumers, can take home today um, in their own little worlds? How can they help what we've been talking about technology and sustainability-wise? Well, that's always a question that I, I get asked, and it's always in some ways is a hard one to answer in that fixing the environmental problems associated with uh, food production and getting these technologies deployed properly is very hard for individual consumers to affect change around. I mean, absolutely. most of us go to the grocery store, we make our decisions largely based on cost and availability and convenience. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very hard to exert change, systemic mm -hmm. change in that system, unless you're some sort of, you know, you were some crazy 23-year-old like me, like I was, and thought, oh, I'll write a PhD on this and establish a career in this, right? Like that. And even even a, like a, what 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 role does a university professor have in 
addressing systemic change about agricultural technologies, like very little. So, so that's a really hard one to answer. Where I think the actual consumer, the individual can play a role is on the other side of the question, which is other side of the equation, the, the more consumer side of the equation, which is to work hard at a community and a household level uh, to address those systemic issues linked with mm. racism and poverty and discrimination that result in about 15% of Canadians unable to afford diets uh, that are dignified and healthy. And and I think that the you ha- we, we you know we want to talk to our MPs and lobby for change and vote with our dollars as much as we can to mm-hmm. help support farmers on the transition towards creating a less environmentally impactful food system. And I think we can, as consumers and as community members rather, and as individuals can actually play a much more constructive and proactive role, helping out with food banks and food security uh, programs and charities and whatnot that are trying to address the structural issues that cause food insecurity in our country. And that's an area coming at this, trying to solve the the more social consumer side, the food insecurity side, is I think an area where, I mean, each person would have to make their own decisions to where they can best make an impact in their own community Mm -hmm. on this regard. But I think there's a lot more potential scope for having a positive impact as an individual um, at the food insecurity, solving the food insecurity problem. Whereas, I mean, figuring out how to deploy smart tractors in a way that reduces environmental impact is really not something that most of us can do most of the time. Absolutely. Um, and finally, a question that we'll ask every guest on the stew. So this can be related to our topic today, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. If you had the ears of every Canadian, what do you wish that they knew about the Canadian food system? Well, I think Canadians should be extremely proud of the system that we've got. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a one of the most productive food systems in the world and in human history. B, we have uh, an ability to bring food to the market with a very small environmental cost relative to other jurisdictions. So you say Mm -hmm. you can compare Canadian beef or Canadian dairy. I mean, often the cow industry gets gets sort of criticized for its environmental impact, which is very large. I'm not I'm not giving mm-hmm. a total pass. And the Canadian system is remarkably efficient, say, compared with anywhere, almost anywhere else in the world. So right. I, I think, and then we've got the system that's extremely safe. I mean, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. I mean, food safety issues crop up all the time and there's no reason, there's no, re- this. what I'm saying is not a reason to be not be vigilant, but mm-hmm. we have an extremely safe food system which is uh, the envy of the world. So, I I mean, I I would like to say thank you (laughs) to all the farmers and agricultural workers and food processors and food inspection agency operators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which have given us a remarkable system. And there's a huge scope for uh, making things better, making things Mm -hmm. more sustainable. Um, So at the same time as I'm extremely proud of our system, I'm also aware that there is a very large environmental footprint that needs to be addressed. And I wish people knew about that more. And we live in this country where food insecurity is unacceptably high and disproportionately affects marginalized people such as black and indigenous people of color. And that systemic marginalization of uh, specific groups 
is unacceptable in a country as successful and with as good a food system as Canada. So that mixture of huge amount of pride and gratitude for what we've got, but a huge clarion call to fix the social and environmental problems uh, is, is what I think Canadians need to hear. Well, thank you so much for your time, Evan. Hopefully our listeners have a better understanding of what they can do in their own homes, as well as the bigger picture of sustainability and technology in our food system. And then they can go on and share this message with their networks. So thank you for joining us today and have a great day. That's great. My pleasure. And thank you. That was an incredible conversation with Evan and I, and the fact that obesity rates as well as starvation rates are increasing simultaneously was a shocking statistic to me to listen to. In addition, I loved the fact that Evan acknowledged that our current system is not sustainable. We cannot be importing food from California, um, was his example, and that more local food will be produced in Canada moving forward. For more, please subscribe to The Stew and tune in every week to hear the latest episode.